Amen. Thanks, James. Hopefully you have your uh, little notebooks if you want to take some notes this morning and the scriptures as well that we're going to read from. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, just a few verses out of that. I'm not, we're not going to read the entire text. It's a long passage. It's Romans chapter 7. We're in a series called New Life in Christ. And Paul's establishing for us in these three chapters how it is that we live and experience the new life that we have in Christ. And in this morning, Paul dives into uh, probably one of the most vulnerable uh, uh, places in his life. It's, it's the most famous internal dialogue ever recorded. As Paul, you will find, is going to admit to all, all who is reading his texts of his, of his insufficiencies, of his uh, inability uh, in himself to live out new life in Christ and points to Jesus. And I find it very authentic. I find it refreshing, especially, especially since what we often feel is so much condemnation and expectation that we can't keep. It's very refreshing to find Paul in a moment where he uh, pulls back the veil and reveals his own heart and his own struggle and points the way forward. It's very, very honest. I might entitle it Honest Confession of an Average Christian. Um, I, have, uh, I hope you enjoyed Josh White from Portland, Oregon, uh, Door of Hope, last week. And he spoke of the centrality of the cross. That's really the theme of his life, is to come back to Jesus. It really does. The, the gospel draws us to Jesus because of the cross, so that we might live. And the only way to live is to understand the impact of the cross in our lives. But uh, he almost got me off... off um, off the narrow path this last week. I went up, uh, he's been up in Arrowhead uh, finishing up his book. And now he's preaching in Orange County and then he'll head home. And uh, so I went up for a day to hang out with him and work on the message. And um, we went out and he said, hey, let's go get a tattoo. It would have truly been one of the most impetuous moments of my life. And you're all wondering whether I did it or not. Josh needed another one so badly, and he loves getting others to get one. And it would have been probably the most impulsive thing I've ever done in 61 years of my life. My life is a calculated series of events filled with sheer adventure, somewhat impressive achievements, and iterative, mildly controlled chaos. That's the way I describe myself. And this would have fallen to a whole other category, utter unthinkable impetuousness. And actually, I had a tattoo picked out. We had been talking about his book, and one of the chapters of his book is entitled Festina Lente. And Festina Lente is a he, uh, Latin phrase that comes from Augustus. And it means, uh, it's very interesting, it, it literally means to hasten slowly. So move forward slowly, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I think I've heard in the last several years from the Lord, from me, is to hasten forward slow, slowly. And uh, there's several ways to, uh, that he 
actually emboldened that. One was an anchor with a dolphin around it, and it was beautiful. And so we talked about that, and uh, I was actually very tempted. But Romans chapter 7, verse 15 came to mind quickly. And Romans 7, 15, in the middle of our text, says this, For I'm, what I'm doing I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me, for I know nothing good and dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willingness is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And I had this this inner dialogue going on in my mind, and then I quickly texted Denise to make sure it was okay, and she thought it was a bit hasty. But, you know, I think early in my Christian life, and then I'm going to look at the text, and, and we're going to talk about how, to be, how we are set free from this bondage of expectation that we can't live up to. And the only way to live the Christian life is to be set free from that expectation that's deep within us that often drives, drives us to feel as though we have been justified by God that's apart from the cross. There's nothing that can replace the cross of Christ. And Paul says you have to die to this obligation, this deep inner sense of I've got to follow this in order to be proved to God or not, or I won't be. So when I was a young believer, I was so excited in my walk with the Lord, kind of took off running. And it, it really compelled me. My, the deeper I got with the Lord and as I read God's word and found new scripture and, and it, it, it uh, enlightened me and inspired me and I began to live this Christian life out. And it was really kind of an exciting, powerful movement of the spirit in my life. And I felt so free and I loved it. But I got to be honest with you, later in my life, and this often happens, I settled into more of a kind of a rote obedience, a sense of obligation to kind of almost, whether it was written or unwritten, an expectation that I heard and it came from people, it came from the church, it came from an inner calling in my life. It came from a lot of places, but I felt like I moved quickly into a place where you better keep up, you better do what you need to do, you better toe the line. And I felt like that began to control my relationship with Christ. And what Paul is trying to communicate in Romans chapter 7 is that if obligation and some law or some written objective standard becomes the focus of your life, this is really important. It's going to drive you deeper and deeper into the very thing you're trying to get rid of in your life. And for many of us, 
sometimes we're scratching our head going, well, how is that possible? How could any good moral biblical standard actually be a deterrent from living the righteous life, the life that Christ wants us, as opposed to the very way in which we should live? And Paul describes it this way, and that's what I want to look at this morning. Romans chapter 7. Paul says, or do you not know, brethren, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that is the Old Testament law, the standard, the standard of morality for the people reading the Bible in the first century was the moral law of God, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, the law of God from the Old Testament. And that became the standard of obligation, the standard of obedience. It's what we, uh, we held high to this standard. And if you did that, you would be seen as approved unto God. It wasn't necessarily the purpose, but it is most certainly what happened. So Paul's talking to those that understand that there's this standard, this law, that seems to make us feel obligated, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her, the husband. So then if while the husband is living, she is joined to another man, she is called, she'd be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, brethren, also you were made to die to the law. Paul's giving us an illustration. He's just illustrating how we have died to this, this central obligation, this, this expectation that we can't keep. Paul actually says you've died to that so that you might be joined to one another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. If you want to bear fruit for God, you've got to be connected to Jesus. He becomes your guide. He becomes your Lord. And nothing can replace that. And for many of us, we're thinking, well, how is that possible? How are we taking now something so good, the Old Testament law, the, the moral standard of God, which we're to live out, and why are we having to die to that? Well, uh, I'll give you an illustration. When I, um, I, we, I took the family to Disneyland a couple days ago, and um, we had all the young kids, and it was awesome. And we were mainly in the uh, Fantasyland area, and uh, Toontown was closed. And so, you know, 45 minutes later, we're on Dumbo and then the teacups and that kind of a thing. But I wanted to kind of up our game a little bit. So I took August, our three-year-old grandson, and said, would you like to go on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride? It's my favorite ride. At least I remembered it as my favorite ride. It's been a long time. And um, he didn't want to go. It's too scary. You have to walk through these doors. It's dark in there. So I took him up, and I showed him you get in these little cars. You're going to really love it, the little cars. And, um, and then he decided he wanted to go. So the two of us went on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And what uh, I discovered is that it's frightening in there for a child. And you leave feeling very, very guilty that you've broken the law. 
because Mr. Toad is a very bad driver. And Mr. Toad actually uh, has the police running after him, and all these police pop up. And then he goes through the courtroom, and the judge says, you're guilty. And he keeps going, and he's such a bad driver that he runs into a bunch of dynamite, and everything blows up. And about two-thirds of the way through, August looks at me and says, Pops, I don't like it in here. And I... I almost turned to him and said, I don't either. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride is no longer my favorite ride at Disneyland. And I thought, isn't it interesting? The only way out, there's an exit. And I said, hang on, there's an exit. We're going to get out of here, and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And sure enough, you're heading right for a wall, and that's all all I remember of the ride is that then the, the door opens, and you're out, and you're out of this chaos. Um. But isn't it interesting, right in the context, right in the middle of Disneyland is the gospel. The gospel that proclaims the fact that we're really bad drivers, all of us. And the police are after us, and the judge stands right before you, and you drive by, and he says, you're guilty. You're guilty. And he's got his finger down, he's pointing at you. And we keep going, and we really make a mess of things and blow everything up. And then we come out. And I think what Paul is trying to communicate in this passage is that we have to go through a death in order to live. We have to go through Mr. Toad's wild ride in order to get to where we really need to be. Because Mr. Toad's wild ride reminds us of our condition. And that's what the law does Its purpose was to remind us of our condition, of our problem, so that we might find the solution at the end of the tunnel. Does that make sense? That's Romans 7. And so I think what we have done in our culture and our society is try to build our life on law, and it doesn't work. We have tried to legislate morality, and it's not working. And you could make any law your God and say, this is going to transform society. This is it. This is what we need to do. If we all just simply did this, we'd be a better society. Someone once said, if we as an entire culture of people would just simply follow one of God's Ten Commandments, we'd have a pretty good culture a pretty good society. Just one of them, let alone all 10 of them. But we know it's impossible. It just, it just doesn't work. We can't live by a law. We end up breaking it ultimately. You know, in the United States, there are 3,000 criminal offenses. 3,000 criminal offenses found in 23,000 pages of federal law. 23,000 pages that describe our federal laws. That's remarkable. We just keep legislating and legislating and legislating, and society continues to go off the rails. It doesn't work. It doesn't provide the needed transformation that Paul is talking about. And so if we put our confidence and our trust in any set of laws or any 
external expectation and we think that's going to be what we need in order to get to the new life in Christ. It's not going to work. And so something has to change. And what Paul says, we have to die to that law. We have to die. But then he's going to ask the question, but then what's wrong with the law? Well, he's going to answer that. And then he's going to point out what the real culprit is. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. We are dead to the law so we can live free in Christ. That's the first thing we're going to look at briefly. But second, we're going to look at the fact that the law, the law is not bad. The law is doing its job. Just as the law in our land does its job, pointing out the, the inabilities of us basically to follow it. And then finally, third, the problem is in us. It's not the law. The problem is in us. And those are the three things that I want to look at uh, this morning with you. The law is not our salvation. Jesus is. So in chapter 7, the very first thing that we see is Paul talking about a death. You see that? We are no longer under a law. Why? Because the law was never intended to make us righteous people. Paul says that we died to it so that through the body of Christ we might be joined to one another to him who has raised us from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. But we have to go through a death. I remember the very first time that I, and I wrote down the first time I argued my case before a judge. It's actually the only time I've ever argued my case before a judge. It's not like I've been arrested multiple times, and I wasn't really, a, I wasn't even arrested. I got a ticket for, for going through a yellow light uh, one cold, snowy morning in Chicago, in the northwest suburbs. And I read, a, a red, I, th- I believed it was yellow, the police officer believed it was, uh, said it was red. It was a snowy, icy day. I had bald tires on my Grand Wagoneer. I remember the car followed me through the yellow, and I had my case all laid out. So I show up, and I'm like, I'm going to fight this one. I'm pretty sure it was yellow. And I had thought everything through because my tires, I needed to replace my tires, so I wouldn't have been driving fast, and, you know, and, you know, on and on it goes. And so I get before this judge. I've never done this before. And uh, so they call my name, so I go up, and I have to stand right in front of the judge. Have you ever done this? And it's very intimidating. Bill, I don't know how you did it for so many years, but it's very probably because you knew the law, and it worked. But you built this confidence, and yet I, I felt so small, right? Don't you feel so small? You just stand there, and he looks down at me. <laughs> And goes, so what's your excuse? Everybody's guilty. Everybody's guilty that comes before me. What's your excuse? And I thought, well, he's having a very bad day. <laughs> and my argument goes out the window. I, well, I, you know, it's like, you're guilty. I didn't even get my argument. I, I, I was going to lay it all out. And I was thinking, well, I'm going to have poster boards of the intersection and the whole thing. And. I was guilty before I even stinking opened my mouth. I should have 
really thought it through and written it down. Yes, Your Honor, I am guilty. Now, 20 years later, I've rewritten what I, was, what I want to say to that guy if I ever see him again. First of all, you're not very nice. And I remember leaving going, this is remarkable. This is exactly what the Bible says, that we're guilty. You're guilty. And you just feel this sense of like, yeah, what a disgusting feeling. Horrible. Like, ugh. I don't want to be guilty, and I most certainly don't want to stay in my guilt. And I had to go pay my fine, and, and I'm guilty. I'm still guilty 20, 20, 30 years later, and I'm still mad about it. So anyway, I had this whole argument, but that's not the point. We could often ask the question, why did God give us the law in the first place? if it simply points out our guilt? And our answer would be to draw people to himself. The entire Bible could be summed up in three, mo three movements. Fall, law, grace. And if you stay in the fall, you're in bad shape. You're separated from God. You blame each other. It's a horrible place to be in the fall. Because there's, there's no redemption in the fall. There's no res restoration of relationship. Then the law comes, and you feel even worse because you look at all the law, what the law says, and you realize you can't do that. You can't keep up with it. In fact, you're guilty of the law in every aspect of it, and you're left feeling this sense of disappointment until the third movement comes, which is God's whole point, that he brings this grace that frees us from that guilt and from the obligation of the law and brings us a Savior, which we need. But you've got to go through a death. Luther once said, do this and it is never done. Grace believes everything has already been done. If we live a life where we feel like we just got to do this, it'll never be done. But if we live by grace, we recognize everything has already been done. And that's the profound truth of the gospel that sets us free. I'll give you an illustration. Imagine someone married. This man marries this woman, this is not a true story, and it's none of you, who really crushed him with these high, unattainable standards. And a plaque was displayed in their home, and the plaque read, what every married uh, man, what every good husband should do. And this plaque listed all the things a good husband should do, and she reminded him daily of the plaque. Comparing him to other men. If you want my respect, you need to earn it. He lived under the dead weight of obligation. But his wife dies. At first, he felt relief. He took the plaque down, put it in a box, put it in a closet. Years passed, and he felt lonely, desired companionship. And then he met a delightful, cheerful, supportive woman. They were married. They fell in love. And she encouraged him 
overlooked as failures in favor of honest, loving, open dialogue. She was supportive and respectful of who God had made him to be. One day, he opened the closet and found that box and opened the box and found the plaque. Pulled it out and looked at it, and he read it silently and there and then realized that all those things that his previous wife had demanded of him were now true of him. Out of a heart, out of a desire motivated by pure love. What was obligation was not desire in the deepest sense. What was obligation was now desire in the deepest sense. Something changed. And that's what Paul is alluding to here. In order to live a new life in Christ, something has to die within us. It's our relationship to a sense that we are obligated to fulfill a standard that we can't keep. It dies. It's done. It's over. It has died a death. Now, by the way, the law doesn't die. The person dies. We die to the law so that we can live for... And you cannot live for Christ if you are still living for the law. If the law could be any standard, any obligation, anything in your life that you sense this level, high level of expectation that you recognize, I can't keep that. The minute Christ comes in, he begins to transform you through a heart change, Romans chapter 6, so that you might bear fruit for God. It's not that we're free from any standard of obligation. It just changes. So the natural question is, well, what should we say? Is the law sin in verse 7? Paul says, if, 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 if it's a thing that we have to die to, then is it bad? Is law bad? And Paul would say, no, it's done its job. It's done the job it's needed to do. When God gave us the law, he gave us a standard to point out our need for Christ. Paul says the law was a tutor that led us to Christ. A tutor is not a parent. A tutor in the first century was literally a male nursemaid, that a slave, part of the family that would lead the children to school and back to school and correct external behaviors, but was simply a guide leading the child. And the law leads us to Christ. In fact, Paul goes on to say, See, if it was not for the law, I would not even know sin. I, I wouldn't even know the fact that I need Christ in my life. But it was really the law spoke, you shall not covet. He points out one. He says, here's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's uh, possessions. Don't be covetous. Don't be, live a life of covetousness. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. In other words, when I, the law was pointed out to me that I shouldn't live a life of covetousness, 
I recognized it within myself. It became very apparent. It's like taking a Psych 101 class. We feel pretty well-adjusted and normal until we know all about the diagnoses, the diagnoses that we are to avoid. Neurosis, psychosis, narcissism. And then we begin to ask the question, am I, am I a psychopath? Am I a narcissist? I was pretty good until I realized, wow, these conditions that now I'm aware of seem to be present in me. See, if we didn't have the standard, we wouldn't know the condition we're in. That's the point. That's what Paul's saying. And so Paul says it was a good thing. It actually led us to experience what it is that we truly have to experience in order to find Christ. And then finally, Paul ends Romans 7 with this dialogue. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I don't understand. But I'm doing the very thing I hate. Paul says the problem is not the law. It is something within me. It's me that needs to change. I need a savior. I need something within me that will change me because I am the problem. Uh, C.K. Chesterton wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World? And in it, he says these words. In one sense, and that the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. In other words, we'll never achieve what it is we want to achieve until we first recognize within us that the greatest problem we have is, is something within us that desires to live contrary to the way in which we were made. And so Paul says that the law was good in the sense that it drove us to understand our true nature, to bring us into a relationship with Christ. And it's a good death. It's a good death. Because in that death, we recognize now that as Paul ends, he says, I joyfully concur with the law and then my inner man. I see a different law in the members of my body waging a war with the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Thanks be to God. Paul ends and says, the battle rages on because of deep inner desire. But the battle is solved in Christ, and that's what Romans 8 is all about. So Romans 7 sets us up for the answer, which is in Romans 8. The condition looks grim. The solution is Christ, which solves, really solves our dilemma. But we have to understand the problem before we get to the solution. And that's where I want to end this morning. And I want to ask you a question as we um, go to communion. What part of our life are we living out of a sense of obligation? I mean, really, seriously. 
What is it that we are doing that really is more of a law unto itself in our lives that is controlling or trying to control our behavior and our life? As opposed to recognizing that it's drawing me to the one who is giving me the power to live a new life. Does that make sense? So what is it in me that's still living by an obligation, a law, a tradition, a belief, a way of life, a standard that has become a God in and of itself? And what Christ wants to do is free us from the obligation because it leads us further into despair so that we might cling to him who is the answer. So think about that, that we, this week, and then James next week is going to come back and give a kind of another perspective from a different, kind of a different perspective on Romans 7 before we get into Romans 8, which is that we are no longer under condemnation we no longer live under the flesh, but under the Spirit. So, Father, guide us this week to do some really good and powerful uh, self-evaluation. We all tend to live by a sense of obligation that doesn't seem to turn out for our good. Father, would you um, make us aware of that and allow us to see the death that we died is a life that we live in Christ. It's not being set free so that we might simply do as we please. It is being set free so that we may do what we desire. And that comes in our relationship with you but one comes before the other. So may we do, Father, that evaluation, that heartfelt evaluation to come to a greater understanding of the presence of you in our lives as foremost above the law. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to close with, some, with just some music, and uh, we are going to have communion. Communion is an opportunity for us to come before the Lord. And to receive the sacraments is to receive the body and the blood, the flesh, the body of, and the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. And we go expecting to meet Christ in his presence to meet him, powerfully meet him at the cross. Because the cross is what killed the law of obligation in our lives. So go with freedom, knowing that as you go and take the communion, you are taking the freedom of Christ in yourselves through his death so that you do not have to live a law of obligation, but a life of desire lived on the basis of what Christ wants for you in Jesus' name. Amen. my God is so much better than all of these things. So I won't be safe.